Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back Azar Nafisi, famously known for her multi-award-winning New York Times bestseller, Reading Lolita in Tehran. She also wrote Things I've Been Silent About, That Other World, and The Republic of Imagination, which she was on the show with me for back in 2014. A link to that interview can be found in our archives. Azar returns with Read Dangerously, Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. The book came out this past March, but has only grown more relevant since its release. We'll chat about the role of fiction in social discourse, the responsibilities of artists, the responsibilities of citizens, some of the literature she suggests we read. Azar comes to us this year through the Miami Book Fair, which just finished up this past weekend. Even though the in-person event is over, I encourage you to check them out at miamibookfair.com. It's never too early to prepare for next year. And by checking out their listing of this year's authors, you get a sense of the size and scope of that amazing event and maybe add a little to your reading list. Before I bring Azar on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started that page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out. If the show has boosted your writing in some way or you've gotten some useful advice, it's an easy way to reach out to us and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Zar, welcome back. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you, Marie. So I went back to listen to our 2014 interview, and America sounded so quaint and so carefree (laughs) back then. Or maybe I was just naive. But we were not joking about banned books, but they were certainly the exception more than what's becoming the rule. And, and, you know, we were talking about democracy as if it was a foregone conclusion in America. And I was fully ignorant of what was coming. And I wondered if you could put yourself back in that 2014 mindset. And were you also surprised of what was coming or kind of when did it hit you what, what we were in for? You know, I was worried. Um, When you live in a totalitarian society, you become sensitized to signs and symbols that happen around you. Uh, And I can understand why the majority of Americans uh, felt complacent. And complacency was one problem where uh, you don't want to know the truth, the reality that is staring you in the eye. But I was troubled. It was the the fact that uh, I was worried about um, some trends in U.S. was, in fact, one of the main themes of the Republic of Imagination. I mentioned in that book that when you love a place, uh, you become more demanding. You know, when you are a tourist, for example, to Washington, D.C., you don't care. You see the beauty, you see the museums, and uh, maybe you still like wherever you come from. But if you live in Washington, D.C., then you love the city and you're constantly complaining about why are not things the way they should be. And that's how I felt uh, with United States. It was out of that love and caring for, for America. And then as a citizen, I was worried about some of the trends. I never imagined it to be where it is now, but I worried about the trends. I worried about the way media was um, joking around with Donald Trump. Um, not taking him seriously, taking him just as a clown. And a clown he is, but he's also a lot of other things uh, which they were not paying attention to. And deep down, there was this anxiety. Well, because we have the luxury of time this morning, and we didn't get to do this last time, I would love for you to just talk about your experiences growing up in Tehran and your father, who is such an influential an important part of this book, because I think, you know, that that background so informs your understanding of what we're going through today. If you could just set us up in your family and in your and in Iran, what what your experiences were like growing up? 
You know, I was just thinking as you were speaking that I can trace my life through the books and stories I had heard and read. My family uh, was very anti-establishmentarian, but one thing that they really revered was um, knowledge, uh, especially books. Since I was three, three and a half, my father every night uh, would tell me a story and he was very democratic in the way he told his stories. Uh, He would, um, one night we would visit our epic poet uh, Ferdowsi and the great uh, Persian mythology. The next night we would fly to France with the little prince to England with Alice in Wonderland, to Denmark with Little Match Girl, to America with Charlotte's Web. Uh, So from very early childhood, I realized I can be in my small room in Tehran, and the whole world will come to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, this became reading and writing became a method of living in the world and existing. Uh, because later on, at the age of um, 13, my parents sent me to England to be independent and to learn uh, from the experiences of another culture. And they couldn't imagine how um, sad and lonely that made me. All of a sudden, all the things, all the uh, people and places uh, that had made me feel at home uh, in uh, in Iran were taken away from me. And I was going to go into uh, a country that uh, I did not know um, that uh, everything about it, including the climate, was different from the one I had lived. And um, the idea of having a home that no one can take from me, I think uh, started there. I couldn't take Iran with me, but I could take some of the best Iran had to offer, which was its poets. So I took three books of poetry with me. Rumi, our classical poets, Rumi and Hafez, and a feminist poet who was so very popular in Iran, Furugh Farrokhzad. And every night before going to sleep, uh, I would go under the duvet and uh, read these books. And uh, it is a habit that I have kept until this day. And from that, I learned that there is a portable world if you accept the world of imagination. And that world, no one on earth can take away from you. It can be with you anywhere you go. And to make this long story short, I made my home in England and later in United States through their works of imagination. Before going to England, before going to United States, I had already been there through their stories. And you had this experience of growing up in a country pre-cultural revolution, you know, I assume, and then coming back to that country that had radically changed and all the rules sounded very, very different, which I think is is a little bit of what some of us are experiencing today, that whatever we grew up in in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s feels radically different than how it feels today. And I don't know if through the lens of literature and those books that you took with you, what, what helped you make sense of the country you returned to as an adult and in such a different context than it was when you grew up there? You mean, uh, how did I connect through literature to con- countries I was sent to? Or when you went back to Iran? as an Or when I went back to Iran. Yeah. yeah, when I went back to Iran, actually, that was where I focused on um, the subversive role that lit- literature plays uh, uh, in our lives. Because when I went back to Iran, as you mentioned, um, nothing was the way it had been before and the way I expected it to be. I just tell you something about the way they changed the laws so that you know how radical the change was. Before the revolution, Iranian women were active in all walks of life. We had two women ministers uh, that, that goes into early 70s. We had 
two women ministers, a minister for education and a minister for women's affairs, the second uh, next to France uh, to become a minister for women's affairs. Um, in the world. And um, my own mother was one of the first women who went to the parliament in 1963. Um, we had women pilots, we had women engineers, women involved in industry in every walk of life. And we had some of the most progressive laws, not just in Iran, but in the region and in the world. And the first thing that this regime did, and um, true to its totalitarian nature, was to annul the family protection law that protected women at home and at work. Um, the age of marriage for um, girls in Iran used to be 18. They reduced it to nine. And they called this uh, Iranian culture and traditions. Uh, if that is my culture and tradition, then fascism and communism are the culture of Europe. And slavery is the culture of United States, not their great thinkers and uh, writers and poets and, 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 uh, and people. So they brought the punishment of stoning people to death for what they called prostitution and adultery. And uh, this uh, mandatory veil that has become now one of the most important uh, motivations for Iranian women to rebel against the regime, they had one year in prison plus 86 lashes. They would flog you if you did not wear the compulsory veil. And so, and they, of course, uh, disconnected us from the world. And the way I connected to my people and I connected to the world that had been taken away from me was through the best that that world had to offer. It's art, it's music, it's books. And that is the same way it is right now as we speak that Iranian people speak through the language of songs and music and um, connect to the world through reading its most democratic-minded uh, representatives like Hannah Arendt, Karl Popper, Václav Havel, uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, so uh, that is how I connected to the world when I was living in Iran. What years were you there originally, and what years did you go back to teach? I left uh, for Iran in 1979, so okay. it was at the beginning of the revolution. Uh, I stayed there for 18 years and left for United States in 1997. Uh, I was immediately employed uh, um, uh, at the university, uh, uh, first uh, a woman's college and then University of Tehran at the very beginning of the revolution in 1979. And uh, I was expelled for not wearing uh, the mandatory veil uh, to the university in 1981, I think it was, or 83. I, I don't remember the exact date. It was early 80s. Uh, when I was expelled. I did not teach for seven or eight years, then went back to teaching for a few years, but then couldn't teach uh, under those conditions. So I resigned. They didn't accept my resignation, but I stopped going until they expelled me. I love your acts of subversion all the way through, through literature <laughs> and through action. <laughs> You know, they made women's bodies subversive by telling us that we have to appear in public, but we cannot be visible. They were trying to make us invisible. And Iranian women, the, the hijab is no more a religious symbol in Iran. It is a political symbol. And women taking their uh, veils off and throwing them into fire, what they are telling the regime symbolically is you did not succeed. You could not uh, steal my identity as a woman. 
And I think that in that Iranian women's struggle uh, for their rights will become a model uh, for many other places. Already. Well, let's turn to the book. So read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. When did you know this was a book? I know it's it's part of sort of a, a quartet of books that you've written across time. When did you know this was a book you needed to write? At what point in, in America's slide did you know this was a book you needed to do? Well, you mentioned the Republic of Imagination, and almost immediately after I finished that, I mean, uh, after I started traveling uh, for my book promotion and talking to people and um, noticing small things which I had not uh, noticed before. But this uh, situation continued until 20. 2016 mm-hmm. uh, and the elections of 2016. Then I descended into a sort of anxiety depression mode uh, because I kept seeing trends. And I'm very careful to say that America is not the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, I'm not by any means saying that America has become a totalitarian society. But I want to say that I saw trends, totalitarian trends that worried me a great deal. There were two things, especially one, the lies Before the big lie, uh, Donald Trump and his supporters uh, were uh, disseminating uh, disseminating lies uh, all over the country. And that is very totalitarian in nature because totalitarian states live on lies. uh, And um, that is why writers and readers become dangerous to them. Because writing is about discovery of the truth. And truth is always dangerous because once you know it, you cannot remain silent or you become complicit. So I didn't know what to do. And usually when I don't know what to do, but I'm obsessed with an idea and I was becoming obsessed with these totalitarian trends in U.S., I take to writing. So I started writing in my diary. And I don't know why, but I didn't want to write essays. I started writing um, letters. And uh, those letters were very random, from Abraham Lincoln and actually my father uh, to um, Donald Trump. I was writing letters right and left. Well, they couldn't become a book. They were too random. Then I decided I would write letters to um, the writers that I have chosen for my book. Uh, But that would make it too artificial. What am I going to tell Margaret Atwood? Hi, Margaret, I love your book. You know, Uh, uh, it just didn't work. So I was complaining to a friend and she said, why don't you write to a third person? And I immediately had in mind my father. Uh, My father and I had uh, connected uh, in many different ways, had many conversations, but uh, we wrote one another a lot. Um, The first time he wrote me, I couldn't read. Uh, I was only four years old. And he wrote in his diary, which I have it in my office now, uh, he wrote me a letter addressed to me telling me uh, how my birth has affected his life and about his aspirations. The first time I wrote to him, I was only six years old and he was at the American University in Washington, D.C. studying. And he would write me long letters that I couldn't even read properly. And I would write him on scraps of paper. I had just learned how to write. Uh, And this writing um, continued throughout his life. Um, We would write about everything from things that were very personal to things that were political. So I felt that he was the right interlocutor. It would make the book intimate, uh, but at the same time would allow me to expand on the ideas that I had. We should say that your father was the mayor of Tehran from 61 to 63, yes? Yes, and um, he was 
My father was a good mayor, but, uh, but he wasn't a good politician. Um, he didn't belong to any groups or party. He, he was very independent minded and very frank. And he bought the enmity, the, the two most powerful men uh, in Iran, uh, the prime minister and the minister of um, uh, interior uh, who trumped up uh, some charges and put him in jail. Then they told him he can leave jail and all will be forgotten if he apologizes for his foolhardiness and shows in some way that he's repentant. And he said that he wants to have his day in court. So for four years, they kept him in what they call the temporary jail. During these four years, he translated many poems from English and French, which were the two languages he was fluent in. He started learning a new language, um, uh, Russian, and he started painting. Uh, so, um, uh, that became a model for me, that during the times of repression, uh, I have to keep up uh, my spirit uh, through imagination and ideas. Anyway, to make this story short, uh, uh, he finally had his day in court, and he began his defense with a quotation from our epic poet Ferdosi, and his defense is um, uh, uh, full of quotations from uh, Gandhi to Victor Hugo to uh, Persian poets and thinkers, uh, and he was exonerated of all charges, except in subordination. And from then on, the word insubordination uh, has a revolutionary meaning uh, for me. But anyway, later they dropped that charge as well. Uh, but I always remember to tell people that he was convicted of insubordination. Oh, there's so much here to unpack. I imagine that your, your letter writing between each other may have escalated while he was in prison. I don't know how much opportunity you'd have to visit him or talk to him in, in person. So I, I wonder if, if that was a time when your letters really grew much more frequent. Oh, we, we wrote a lot. Uh, we could we usually, unless something happened in between, uh, we usually could visit him in the jail warden's office once a week. Um, mm. Uh, but we wrote a lot. He wrote me and my brother letters as well as poems. Uh, he wrote poems to everyone. Uh, uh, it got on the, um, the government's nerves because he would write about them as well uh, and, and about his incarceration. Um, but uh, yes, we wrote a lot. Uh, uh, part of his, the, the, at first when they arrested him, I was in England. Um, they brought me back home. Uh, so I didn't know that he was in jail. But um, uh, that was the time we wrote most. I was thinking about this tradition of writing in the epistolary form I know uh, well, I, there's there's a long tradition of it, but I was thinking of Gilead, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, and mm. uh, Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Two two writers who probably could have fit someplace in this book as well. But what that affords you, what that epistolary form affords you, which is, as you said, sort of this access to your father, this level of intimacy, this this way of getting at backstory and memoir, as well as telling him about these writers who have been on your mind of you know, your father's no longer with us. So you're bringing him sort of up to speed on what America is going through and what Iran is going through. It's a really wonderful form. And I wondered once you settled on that, was was there any difficult, it sounds like it gave you a lot. Was there any difficulty in working in that epistolary form? Once I got um, that form, uh, I, I relaxed. <laughs> uh, it seemed as if... Um, my father was there and uh, uh, talking to him um, both brought back memories, but at the same time, um, letter writing has this um, beautiful quality 
that you both uh, can write very intimately, uh, but at the same time um, expand your ideas. I look at it as a conversation, as a constant conversation. Uh, so um, once I found that uh, uh, way of writing, uh, the rest came easy. It took me longer to think about the form than it did to write it. Well, let's talk about some of the authors that you chose, because there's some overlap between them. And and a lot of what you talk about in here has only escalated since the book came out earlier this year. A lot has happened since since yes. the book came out. But first, let's just unpack some of these these authors that you chose, anywhere from Plato, who is, a, you know, a long time ago, to Tahanesi Coates, who's contemporary, and uh, and a lot of people in between. Tell me a little bit about coming to these these writers, if that was a hard choice. There's a wonderful handful of African-American Black writers in here that I loved reconnecting to, and and who better to speak about America's sin than than Black writers who have been doing that for centuries. But talk a little bit about coming to some of these writers and what they meant to you, and then we can kind of unpack a few of them. Well, I uh, actually, all these writers, uh, whenever I write, the writers I choose um, are the ones that I feel very intimate with. And I choose writers that whose work uh, colored my ideas, what I want to say. Uh, you mentioned the African-American writers. Uh, I felt very close to um, the ones I talked to, especially to James Baldwin. I felt that Baldwin has got it. I ended uh, Republic of Imagination with an epilogue on Baldwin, and I felt that our conversation, um, me and Baldwin, has not ended, uh, that I needed to talk to him more. Uh, so I ended my book with the chapter on Baldwin because of how I uh, feel about him. One of the things that I learned from him was how poisonous pain, hatred is, that you can be very active against injustice. You can fight all your life against injustice, but at the same time, be generous-minded. Do not nurture hatred. He talks about um, the hatred without and the hatred within, and that he is more afraid of the hatred within and, and he also talks about the importance of pain, of living up to your pain. He says that hatred is a cover for pain. And I felt that that explained a great deal about America today and where we are, because we have become a nation that is seeking comfort. And Baldwin says writers are here to disturb, uh, sorry, artists are here to disturb the peace. We need to be disturbed by ideas. We need to question not just the world, but ourselves. We need to pose ourselves as question mark. And I feel that in America today, the reason it is so divisive and polarized is because it is more comfortable to have only certainties and know that you are always self-righteously on the side of the good and not want to listen to others. We talk about the others a lot, but um, it is in imagination and ideas that we respect the others by going under their skin. And uh, I don't see that. I don't see that desire to become someone else, to genuinely feel them. Uh, instead, we tell people um, to only talk about themselves, read about themselves, write about themselves. And that is why I chose these writers. They are so humane. Uh, they do not dehumanize anyone, including their enemies. You cannot become your enemy. You cannot do the same things that your enemy does. You remember when Donald Trump insulted Nancy Pelosi, she didn't come back with an insult. She said, I pray for him. Mm -hmm. What could he do with that? 
That is how you defeat them, by not speaking their language, by speaking your language, which is the language of being humane and being generous. Well, and one of the enduring themes of this book is the power of fiction, as opposed to the power of essay writing or the power of nonfiction, that that the fictive act, that act of imagination, forces the reader to, you're right, to take on the, the point of view, the qualities of the characters. And what a powerful thing that is to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And there's really no other form that can do that, I think, as effectively as the novel can. So it, it's interesting. We talk a lot about on this show, and I think we talked about last time when, when you and I talked about how much truth you can get to in fiction and this tension of non <laughs> quote unquote nonfiction, all of these lies being sort of spewed now that that's confusing and uh, obfuscating the the American discourse in the name of truth and how fiction really gets to to truth better than nonfiction in some cases. What a time. Yeah, yeah, which is why uh, uh, fiction is so dangerous um, uh, to totalitarian mindsets. Uh, you know, um, I um, open... Um, the first chapter of uh, Read Dangerously would Rushdie and Plato and Ray Bradbury. But with Rushdie, I had this question which keeps coming back to me. What is it about a person whose only weapon is his words? He has no other weapon. What makes this person so dangerous that some of the most powerful men in the world uh, who have even access to nuclear weapons are so afraid of him that they want him physically eliminated. It gives the writers a lot of power. I mean, how powerful you should be that they spend so much time and energy to destroy you. To um, uh, Iran is right now filled with, in, its jails are filled uh, with people who are protesting in the streets, but uh, especially writers and artists are at the forefront of this struggle. And uh, you mentioned a lot of things have changed um, since we talked last. Uh, one of the things that had, uh, has changed uh, is uh, these uh, the Iranian people coming into the streets. I begin it with another demonstrations. I begin read dangerously with the demonstrations that Iranian people came, brought Iranian people into the streets in 2019. Yes. And it's suppressed. Now we have a far wider one, just a few years after uh, the last one. Yeah, it is amazing since, uh, as I mentioned, since the book came out earlier this year, I, you know, I've seen Rushdie speak a couple of times, a handful of times in the last 10 years. And I just wouldn't have imagined that he was still in the danger that he was in. And again, I, I suppose that speaks to my naivete, but to read through your lens in this book, the book really opens with Rushdie. What a shock, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong to be shocked that he was still in so much danger 30 years later. No, I think decent people are shocked. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, we we should never get used um, to to this violence they use. Uh, we should stand up to it, but also remember it. Recently, I remember that um, when I left Iran, I took the things that I loved, uh, photographs and, of course, my diaries and books. And when I left Iran... I took many mementos that uh, uh, reminded me of Iran and the love I felt for it. But I also brought with me um, the veil, uh, the hijab that I was forced to wear in Tehran mm. because I wanted to remember, to never forget that freedom, as Saul Bello says, is an ordeal. Mm. that you can never be complacent about freedom. These rights that we had in Iran, we did not understand. We had become too complacent. We did not understand that 
blood has been paid for us to have these rights. And, the, and uh, uh, freedom is costly. It needs to be nurtured every single day. And so this is where we are in America right now. We are at a crossroads. Either we accept freedom as an ordeal and set aside this polarization and become more democratic, more inclusive, or we go the other way. Each way is possible right now. We'll be back with more from Azar Nafisi and Read Dangerously, the subversive power of literature in troubled times in a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show and you've learned any tips or tricks that may have inched you closer to publication, whatever it is, check us out, www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. We will reward you with some tips and writing prompts every single week by becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month. Let's get back to it with Azar Nafisi talking about Read Dangerously. your discussion of Margaret Atwood and The Handmaid's Tale in the wake of, which hadn't yet happened, although I suppose it was being foreshadowed, the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. Yeah. To your point, a lot of fighting had been done and we grew very complacent over women's right to choose. And that discussion of Atwood was really poignant. I can't remember the year that book was written, but you know, I, I remember reading it back when it came yeah. out in the 80s or 90s in the 80s maybe i think it was the 80s yeah and thinking thank god we're past that yeah thank god we passed that uh atwood you know atwood's book is very popular in iran uh, most of her books have been translated and handmaid's tale uh went through um, 11 printing I keep telling sometimes the students here in America that uh, if you want to know about your own fiction, your own literature, your own culture, you should go to Iran. Uh, that is how we connect uh, uh, through, the, through the literature and all. Did you choose specifically American authors? Because I assume your, uh, your audience is, is both American and Iranian, or, well, probably worldwide, but... Um, these were right. Did, were you tempted, I should ask, to include international authors or Iranian authors, or did you really want to stay to, you know, pretty close to oh, American authors? No, uh, I did want to include into well, um, like chapter three, we have um, two international writers, mm. David Grossman and Elias Khoury. And then I mentioned two Iranian women writers. These were the books that were um, closest to the ideas I wanted to talk about. I read so many books. That was such a great excuse for reading books because I had to choose. So, uh, And I read a lot of um, uh, international books. Uh, actually, I, at the beginning, I had a chapter on Maria Varjas Leosa's um, Feast of the Goat, uh, but somehow these fitted better. One thing that, that really resonated with me, there's an anecdote that you tell towards the end of the book, I think in the, the final chapters with James Baldwin and Tahanesi Coates, about you yourself being pulled over in Iran, your car searched, that imagery of being pulled over by the, and, and these weren't even oh, yeah. police, I don't think, but it's that, that image is so iconic in America's mindset about Black people being pulled over and harassed by the cops for no reason. And you, you kind of did that throughout the book of these you know, here's an example in Iran and here's how it's playing out in the U.S. or how it has played out in our own history that we might not be focused on. That was really powerful. I assume intentional. Yes, it's very perceptive of you to uh, find uh, the experience of Black people corresponding to women who don't wear the veil or wear their veils what the regime calls badly, are pulled over. Another thing is the segregation. Uh, like um, uh, in universities, girls and boys are uh, not supposed to be sitting together. Uh, boys sit in uh, front, girls in the back. Buses, metro, 
uh, all public um, transportation is segregated between men and women. So we have felt worst thing that we have felt has been humiliation. I remember talking to a friend of mine um, and we were saying that uh, um, sometimes it is easier to be flogged than to be humiliated and have to wear um, something that you wouldn't wear. Every morning I left home, I felt uh, guilty and uh, and I felt afraid. Uh, you know, women who have done nothing politically could be pulled aside by morality police. Two men and two women with guns uh, for not wearing their veils properly. I mean, you can go to the grocery store in the morning and not come back home. As we have seen in just the past month. Oh, or yeah. Two. Yeah, yeah. Now they're killing them. I mean, they're killing. They, 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 they killed two 16-year-old girls um, uh, and then said that they committed suicide. You know, uh, they um, sentenced a mother and a daughter to 16 years in jail uh, for not wearing their veils properly. This is not a political struggle. No political struggle is just political. It is existential. Yeah. The way I felt, I have not, um, since I went back to Iran until today, I have not belonged to any group or organization. But my um, fight against the Islamic Republic, like millions of other uh, Iranian women, is because as women, we cannot accept this contempt for us as women. Do you draw any parallels between, well, obviously we've drawn the parallel between um, the treatment of women in Iran and the treatment of Blacks in the U.S. And I think a lot of that must stem from, and you talk about this in the book, the, the power that men believe women have and yeah. the fear of that. And and I think that must be true in the United States too, that if, if African-Americans harnessed the hatred that they must have towards our system and towards how they've been treated, the power that would be unleashed on us would be overwhelming and incredible. And so you have to just keep suppressing them in any way that you can. And I, I was wondering if you saw I imagine you do parallels between that in Iran and, and the U.S. Exactly. I mean, you very well put the point. Uh, I, I keep thinking that uh, uh, women have discovered their power in Iran. That is why they're not cowed anymore into uh, giving up on, on the protests. I mean, look at their power. Just if tomorrow... Iranian women come into the streets dressed the way they like to, whatever way they want to. It means that this regime has changed. The regime's well-being and survival depends upon the way Iranian women come into the streets. Now, a totalitarian system can kill uh, leaders of a group or, or a whole group or, organi or political organization, and that would be the end of that political organization. But what are they going to do with millions of young people who come into the streets dressed the way they want? How are they going to put these millions in jail? And, and in this struggle, men are also supporting women. And those women who wear the veil are supporting, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them. And that is what scares the regime, that it is not just the women. Let's talk a little bit about the role and responsibility of the artists in America, because we, as we talked about, you know, the power that writers have and how, you know, men holding nuclear weapons are afraid of what some of these writers can do. And I wonder what you think of the, the role and responsibility of the artist. I ask this because a lot of our listening audience are writers themselves. And we sort of talk a lot about fiction writers. If you go into fiction with an agenda, with a, especially with yeah. a political agenda, 
it's sort of death for your fiction. You know, it's not going to go, it's just going to sound didactic and inauthentic and preachy. But I I do think that if you have a platform, it, it sort of behooves you to use it. And so I, I wonder about that tension of whether you feel as though these fiction writers came to these amazing books with an agenda that they wanted to share, or if the writing has to come out of a place of imagination and subconscious that then turns into sort of a bigger political statement. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And it's a very, I wish this was a kind of question we nationally would discuss, actually. Well, you know, great fiction is I that is what I believe that great fiction is by nature democratic. I mean, you take the structure of the fiction. It is about um, a group of characters, all of them, both in relation to one another and sometimes in opposition to one another. And the writer has to give each character her or his own voice, even the villain. Even the worst character in the book gets to talk uh, and gets to put his agenda, quote unquote, um, uh, to us. Uh, what we as write readers do, we enter the experience and we enter the multivocal um, world of these characters. And through our own experience, as if we're experiencing reality, we make our choices. What the writer should do is to remain faithful to the role of fiction, and that is tell the truth. Margaret Atwood, uh, David Grossman, and James Baldwin, each at one point or another, call themselves witnesses. Writers are witnesses to the truth. So you can't lie. If you lie or if you come with your own agenda, um, you have cheated the reader. Bad writer is like a dictator. A bad writer wants to impose his voice upon the voice of all characters. And uh, in my classes, a lot, sometimes I use... Um, uh, what I call a bad book and, and a quote-unquote great book and uh, the difference, uh, how putting your agenda ahead of the truth, how it um, destroys the book. What's an example of a bad book? Well, I had, when I was um, at, uh, when I was in college, I had read a lot of um, books from Soviet Union, for example. Wow. Uh, I um, remember one very famous uh, book at the time uh, was uh, Gorky's Mother. It was about this woman uh, revolutionary. And uh, I remember all the bad characters were factory owners and um, <laughs> rich people. And they, they were horrible, but, you know, sometimes they even look evil. You know? <laughs> uh, and all the good characters were the revolutionaries. And the, the way they spoke is not the way people speak. Like they would talk to one another uh, in language like um, I am dedicated to my party. Party is more important than my life, you know. So uh, it didn't ring true. It was also condescending towards the reader as if the reader needs a preacher, not a writer to converse with. There's nothing worse than an all black and white characters who are you know, pure yeah. villains with the, you know, <laughs> their in, mustache, right? <laughs> in Iran, they for movies they had um, forbidden, they had banned uh, having villains with beards, <laughs> or uh, or in writing you couldn't use uh, religious names for villains they all had um, zoroastrian for example names uh, but not the names that uh, would belong to muslims well we've talked a lot about what has happened since 
the book's release, the protests in Iran, the attack on Rushdie, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, sort of the escalating attack on our democracy from within. (laughs) Is there anything that you would add to the book now in light of recent events? Or do you feel like the, the book certainly stands for itself in the direction we were moving? But I'm wondering if there's anything you would include in light of what's happened in the past nine months. Well, um, it is very difficult um, to add anything in the book and not change the book itself, because I think that in some ways um, the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the book sort of predicted uh, some of the uh, things that might happen, because I always um, quote Baslav Havel, Uh, saying, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. Uh, I have always been hopeful about the struggle inside Iran. And one thing that the book focuses on uh, is the main targets of totalitarian mindsets, women, minorities, and those who deal uh, with culture. And that is true now as it was true then. Uh, I think I would have talked more about that, more about um, how um, powerful women, minorities, and those who deal with culture are uh, against um, uh, totalitarianism and therefore how dangerous they are. We talked last time about starting banned book clubs and uh, sort of working on the local level. And I wonder now that we've sort of talked about the responsibility of artists and writers, if we can talk a little bit about the responsibility of citizens, regular, ordinary readers. And, you know, it feels in some ways like you're preaching to the choir when you're when you're writing, because the people who are naturally going to gravitate towards your books are perhaps already sympathetic. But you had talked about, and I guess that's the power of fiction is trying to to reach people that you might not otherwise reach, perhaps not Donald yeah. Trump, but um, yeah. but uh, somebody who's, you know, perhaps independent or on the I don't know how you're on the fence at this point. But maybe we can spend some some minutes talking about what hopeful, perhaps not optimistic, but hopeful citizens can do in their responsibilities. Well, um, you mentioned readers, and um, in the epilogue, I bring a quote from Nabokov, uh, uh, where he says, readers are born free and ought to remain free. Um, Readers and writers are joint at the hip. Whatever happens to one will happen to the other. So I think readers also have a responsibility here. Um, it is not just the responsibility of writers who are banned or writers who sympathize with those who are banned uh, to um, uh, defend the right to free expression. Readers also will um, lose something precious uh, when a book is banned, when they don't have the right to read it. And nowadays they're criminalizing books. Uh, so uh, that that is, I think, at at the heart of uh, um, what is happening right now that we need to pay attention to. They do always begin with women, minorities, and culture, and banning of books like uh, Roe v. Wade are all omens that of what what direction we're going. We need to really use the libraries, lose the bookstores as places to connect to the community and let them know that if they don't do something, something would be done to them. You know, the uh, phenomenon of the little libraries that people have in their front lawns. Yes. As you're talking, (laughs) I do too. I do too. (laughs) I was just thinking as you were talking, I should change that to just a banned book, little library. If we did that all over, you know, the South. (laughs) You're right. You're right. You know, we need to have a national conversation around this. Yes. I mean, you know, the, 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 as I say, the problem is sort of you're preaching to the choir when you do this because, yeah. um, but clearly Republican, um, I don't want to overly label people, but, you know, the, the Republican legislatures that are doing this, as you 
as you said earlier, must think these are so powerful that, you know, the ideas are so dangerous that uh, obviously they're, this is what they're afraid of. If we populated all of these little libraries with uh, with all these dangerous books, we can start a little <laughs> quiet revolution in people's front yard. That is great. Can you advertise it, promote it? Uh, I, I think I, I yeah. As much as I, as much as my platform is, I think this is a great idea. If, if and I assume that a lot of our writers and listeners have those little libraries in their front yard. Start, yeah, to, yeah. I can see it from my window. Start packing it with with banned with books. books. Yeah, right. Wow. I mean, it does strike me how how we really need to start working on the local level. The national level feels so overwhelming and and lost to me right now. But little things that you can do in your own communities. We live yeah. in. The- purple community so you know you can have a difference i think on the local level yeah i wish um, we would um, activate the students to do that to create little libraries on their um, campus campus yeah i mean i know that our universities and schools themselves are polarized and each negates the other uh, but uh, maybe this would find a way uh, this way. This is a great idea. I hope. Um, please let me know. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of it either until, you know, as we're talking, I'm like, what can we do? And how, how can you get these conversations going in, in you know, a smaller area on your <laughs> on your front lawn? And uh, yeah, it just occurred to me that uh, that would be kind of a, yeah. a, fun, a fun act of resistance and uh, subversiveness. And I wanted to draw attention to the last line of this book, because what a what a beautiful little act of <laughs> act of resistance the last line of this book is. And I, I hope you could just t- talk about that and talk about ending the book. You mean um, the the slogan? Are yes, you? the slogan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, I, I had I had used that in some of my talks. Because, uh, it, uh, it says, "Readers of the world unite." Uh, one one place we can uh, put um, uh, internet to good use is really understand that um, this world we all share have a share in how the world is uh, moving and going. And uh, one thing that um, uh, we can learn from places like Iran uh, is this unity. And uh, readers come from all sorts of backgrounds. So imagine if all these different backgrounds get together and serve knowledge, serve reading and writing. Uh, What an amazing revolution that will be. Well, maybe your listeners will come with ideas about how to do this. I hope so. I hope so. I should figure out a way to open this up to comments so that people can, uh, yeah, can share their own ideas for for how to use their power and how to use their platform to uh, to rise up a little bit. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Any other advice for for writers, readers? I'm terrible in giving advice, <laughs> uh, but I, I am very promiscuous when it comes to writing. So I hope um, other readers and writers share my promiscuity with me. You have two little, two new little grandbabies in your life. I have but, uh, three little oh, grandbabies. <laughs> I have three little grandbabies and um, two of them are two years old. They were both, my daughter and son had babies in the same month of August. And then I have a six month old as well. Congratulations. Uh, and, what um, are you going to give them to read as they grow up? Well, I was um, trying to make a list of um uh, the books, some of them come from old Persian tales and stories. Uh, um, then I'm going to go down the list that I had uh, when I was a child. Uh, I'm dying to show them Charlotte's Web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, one other thing that I would like to do with them is uh, write a book together, oh. make a story together. That's great. Yeah, there's so much lying ahead that, as you say, if 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 uh, that doesn't give you both hope and optimism, nothing yeah. will like new grandbabies. Yeah, <laughs> and and you think that it is for their future that we should plan, 
Yeah. And uh, I really, my heart really breaks when I think of the state of education in this country. Yeah. And this, and, and the expense, I mean, it is ridiculous. In a democracy, every citizen should have the right to free quality education and free quality health. I can't believe uh, our health and education these days. Yeah, I know. Azar Nafisi, thank you so much. We can find you online. You have a wonderful website, so we can find you there. Are there other ways you like people to follow you and follow what you're doing? Well, I, I'm, apart from being on Twitter and everything, uh, I, I noticed that on the Twitter account, people can send private messages. I would really appreciate um, uh, if anyone uh, gets in touch through my tw Twitter account. Okay. Yeah, that's an easy and uh, safe way to reach out. I think that's And I hope you and I will be remain connected. And if your idea, uh, if you need any support, um, I'm all yours. Oh, me too. Congratulations on the book. Thank and uh, and it's such an important conversation. And I, I hope we keep having it. This was really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank Best you. Best of luck. That was Azar Nafisi. The book is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. It's out and available now and published by Day Street Books. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com. We just got a new and updated website for the show, which is writers-on-writing.com. Up there, you will find all of our past episodes, 900 and some odd shows up there. You can search the archives by name, book title. It's very easy, and that will jump you to how to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. And again, you can check out the Miami Book Fair at miamibookfair.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.